1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Postcolonial feminist scholarship on the formation of gender relations primarily uses the analytical colonizer and colonized diet. In her new monograph, Gender Politics at Home and Abroad, Professor Haewa Che makes an important intervention by examining colonial Korea to propose a new framework that accounts for transnational encounters between national reformists, missionaries, and colonial authorities. Drawing from both major and minor archives in various geographic sites such as Korea, Japan, the U.S., Sweden, and Denmark, Professor Che locates the voices of the educated Korean women whose reform rhetoric and activities reflect transnational encounters. Postcolonial studies have shown us how archives are a contentious political site with prominent feminist scholars such as Antoinette Barton pointing out the need to understand the interdependence between discursive visibility of minoritized people and their experiences. Through her research, Professor Che is able to show how educated women, despite their status as an elite minority, points to the larger structure of patriarchy and how it is constantly contested and reshaped by forces such as the state, ideologies of Western domesticity, and religion. I am very excited to have Professor Haewel Che here today at the New Books Network in Gender Studies to talk about her new book, Gender Politics at Home and Abroad, Protestant Modernity in Colonial Era Korea. Haewel, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm very excited to have this opportunity to discuss my book.
1: Yeah, I am also personally very excited to discuss your book as well. And yeah, I can't wait to dive in. Um, so to start off, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write Gender Politics at Home and Abroad?
0: Okay, thank you for the uh, question. Um, for listeners who may not be familiar with my work, uh, let me just briefly introduce myself. Uh, I'm professor of Korean Gender History and Culture at the University of Iowa. I hold the Stanley Family and Korea Foundation Chair in Korean Studies and also serve as a founding director of the Korean Studies uh, Research Network. Um, I think my research agenda has been very interdisciplinary in orientation, transnational in scope, and also intersectional in analysis. I have been particularly interested in gender and empire, modernity and colonialism, nationalism, secularism, and most recently, uh, feminist uh, food studies in relation to ecological crisis we have. Mm And uh, so um, uh, focusing on the the main topic for today, um, this new book, uh, Gender Politics at Home and Abroad, is um, in some sense a sequel to an earlier book publication entitled Gender and Mission Encounters in Korea, New Women, Old Ways, uh, which was published in 2009 by the University of California Press. So in that 2009 book, uh, I challenge and complicate Korean historiography that often hailed American missionary women as pioneers of Korean modern womanhood. I ask, what constitutes the modern and how American women missionaries understood modernity? But most importantly, how their understanding of modernity intersected with Korean nationalism, Japanese colonialism, Western modernity, and Korean uh, gender ideology and practice. So um, if the 2009 book largely focuses on American women missionaries and their discourse and activities in Korea, especially from the late 19th century to 1910, the latest book Gender politics at home and abroad centers on Korean women who had a wide range of interactions with missionaries as students in mission schools or co-workers and colleagues in Christian organizations such as the YWCA. Those Korean women became the first generation of educated women in Korean history, and they are significantly shaped the modern feminist woman in the first half of the 20th century. So in this book, I was particularly interested in bringing out the voices and experiences of Korean women, uh, especially those who have not been well-known or uh, well-understood in Korean historiography.
1: Thank you so much for the really beautiful introduction. I have... I actually read Gender and Mission Encounters, and in many ways, I thought that um, this new book was a really amazing sequel that I think really deepened my understanding about the genealogy of modern feminist movement, and because my research also is uh, concerning domestic servitude in colonial and post-colonial Korea, and I started to focus actually more on the YWCA because they uh, had you know, they established leadership in reforming households as a site of labor but also labor discipline. Um so your work was just So incredibly helpful for me to, you know, think also about the genealogy of what I am studying. Um, So, yeah, I'm really, really excited to further chat about, uh, you know, this particular monograph. Um, So you mentioned that, you know, you're very interdisciplinary and transnational in your approach. And I was, you know, really struck by your methodological reflection uh, in the beginning uh, when you talked about how you're planning on analyzing, uh, you know, and bringing out education women's voices in colonial Korea and you make a distinction between transnational versus like global history and you know explain like why you decided on this like particular methodology as well as why you decided to you know go transnational can you tell the audience a little bit more about the significance of your methodological contribution and why you decided to you
0: know I'll choose transnational history as a method or perspective? Okay, great. Um, You know, I think um, I would say uh, there were like two related reasons why I thought transnational perspective was particularly central in my research. One is a Korea-specific reason, and the other comes from broader context of global uh, feminisms. Uh, First, in Korean historiography, uh, it has long been dominated by a pro framework that privileged the binary understanding of nationalism and colonialism. Uh, it was only from 1990s that that framework began to be uh, seriously scrutinized and the notion of colonial modernity became a powerful analytic tool for reassessing the modern experiences of the colonized. I was motivated to write this book Uh, because I wanted to shed a new light on colonial modernity in Korea by uh, taking a transnational perspective going beyond the nexus of metropole and uh, colony. So I uh, focus on the flow of ideas, images, people, and material culture, uh, cultures across uh, national boundaries. And of course, I do recognize the immense power that colonial governance had in shaping social structures, material cultures, and everyday life uh, in colonial Korea. But one of the key arguments I make in in my book is that a deeper understanding of gender and colonial history is possible only when we articulate divergent sources of influence to shape uh, modern gender relations and the fabric of modern life. So to put it very simply, the claim of hegemony, especially cultural hegemony of Japanese colonial powers, was constantly challenged by Euro-American cultural and material influences uh, during Mm -hmm. the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then uh, in in the context of global feminism, this is another kind of a reason why I took, uh, I I really um, embraced this transnational uh, approach, is that um, as many feminist historians demonstrate in their work, feminism has a very long transnational history. In, sen- in a sense, feminist history is a transnational <laughs> in terms of scope and approach. So that requires us to ask, what were the sources of feminist dreams, ideals, goals, strategies, tactics, or activism? I claim that they were often found in the transnational community uh, women look beyond the domestic boundaries. Korean women also were inspired by models and examples from overseas that were circulated uh, through print and visual materials. Uh, in some cases, uh, those uh, Korean women encountered these things directly through travel overseas or uh, studying overseas. Um, and also, I should mention that it is very important to say. Uh, their reliance on Western models, so-called Western models, was severely criticized. But as I demonstrate in the book, those Korean women elite um, did not adopt Western ideas and practices uncritically. Rather, they were very actively reinterpreting uh, foreign models, rejecting certain aspects of uh, Western models, appropriating other features, and still adjusting, you know, other stuff according to their understanding of the locality.
1: Yeah. Mm, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was one of the most striking uh, things that I found in your book, how you add all these nuances in terms of, you know, this is like not a simple appropriation, but there are various competing forces that also shape, you know, how these women adopted and I also found that, you know, how... Uh, the women and especially the missionaries talked a lot about uh, how they have to be specific to the local context in order to address this fear about modernization, quote unquote, uh, that intellectuals had about, uh, you know, these like encounters that they were having with transnational forces, which I found really interesting. And um, when you talked about how, you know, um, you're uh, you're also, you know, speaking with, you know, global feminist movement and scholarship that preceded them. Um, I was also, you know, struck by, you know, your discussion of the archives and, you know, uh, engagement with post-colonial feminist scholarship. Uh, can you tell us more about how you're contributing to
0: this um, ongoing scholarship about the politics of archives? Yeah, thanks so much. Uh, this is a really important question. Um. In fact, it has been a perennial challenge in feminist scholarship. We often face a paucity or complete absence of archived sources to provide us with a better understanding of gender history. So what is preserved in archives, what is not there, Uh, what has been utilized in writing history, and what has not been utilized. So all of these questions inform us about the politics of archives and historiography. So under these circumstances, uh, famous scholars, historians, um, have been proposing alternative ways to Excavate uh, hidden histories, uh, unknown histories, to give a new value, and also they try to give a new value and meaning to unconventional resources uh, that could help us make sense of the past. So we utilize all possible forms of documents, including class pamphlets, songs, films, photographs, and uh, creative writings, and uh, points. You name all those things. <laughs> um, so. It- uh, I, so I, I use the photographs uh, uh, to a significant extent, um, but in particular, I just wanted to uh, mention that in my research for this particular book, I used a lot of university archive materials that um, have not been utilized um, or routinely tapped to bring out unknown stories. I look at grade books, if available, campus newspapers, dormitory uh, records, catalogues and etc. So for me, um, it was really like a treasure hunt, uh, searching for any trace of Korean women who crossed domestic and international borders. Um, it was an exhilarating process of discovery, uh, bringing to light uh, what has not been um, understood or uh, what has been kind of forgotten. At the same time, it was also a very um, disappointing time because uh, some of the travels to various archival resources frequently yielded uh, little or nothing about these women. Still, for me, it was very important to be there on the site to to, uh, realize nothing is left. Of course, it might be my own limitation in searching and exploring diverse resources in various countries. Um, But still, I think uh, it was also kind of um, uh, uh, telling much about the politics of archives and what uh, we should continue to really um, uh, make an effort in excavating uh, those unknown histories. Yeah
1: yeah yeah and uh, that also reminds me how you know Antoinette Burton that you know you cite in your book also kind of talk about how you know even when there is absence uh, it also still speaks in a way volumes about uh, the experiences of the women and how um, like the post-colonial feminists in a way uh, speak about the significance of um, absence and how absence uh, doesn't just mean that you know they weren't there but then rather how we can critically read the archives uh, you know not just for uh, you know like what is there but also for like uh, you know what is not there to think about like the politics of visibility so I think like what you're saying is also reminding me about how yeah like in your in your book you know, you know like there is like both like absence and presence and you know they uh in a way still like construct the story I think yeah yeah, which uh, I think is really wonderful yeah well uh, oh, yeah thank you so much um, for yeah um, talking about politics of archives and how your work is you know like really contributing to bringing to light you know all these stories and you know especially I think um university archives I found really interesting that I can't wait to talk about later when we uh, you know talk about the genealogy of home economics as a discipline um, yeah but um, before we um start Uh, you know, discussing the content, I kind of wanted to go over the main, um, you know, analytical framework that you use, which is protestant modernity. And I was wondering whether you could maybe uh, uh, help, you know, explain the concept for the audience and also uh, why, you know, like religion is so significant when we think about genealogy of gender
0: relations in colonial Korea. Mm-hmm. Thank you. You know, uh, modernity used to be understood as a historical path away from religion, uh, yet religions have been really crucial in shaping modernity. And the boundary between the sacred and the secular was never straightforward. Um, it has to be actually rather blurred and co-constitutive. Uh, look at the 21st century. Religion is a very powerful player, in shaping uh, individual, national, and global politics, uh, so when I analyze missionary discourse, I saw these very broad and core constitutive ideas between religion and secularity. So I want to challenge the conventional understanding of modernity and secularization. Uh, so in this book, I use the concept of present modernity as a, more or less a heuristic device to unpack the complex dynamics uh, found in the formation of a modern gender relations fostered by global Christian network uh, within the very specific historical context of colonial Korea. Uh, centering on this uh, concept of a present uh, modernity, I foreground the thesis that present Christianity uh, introduced to Korea in the late 19th century was crucial in shaping modern gender relations, along with uh, other important factors, such as nationalism and colonial influences. I define present modernity as a composite of religious morality, historical outlook, and material practices that could mean different things to different historical subjects. For example. From, a perspective, from the perspective of Euro-American evangelical groups, uh, present Christianity is some sort of ideology that advocates the linear movement in history toward modernity in material and technological aspects. But that also places a moral and spiritual role of Christianity at the core of that enterprise. However, in comparison, for the newly converted Koreans, the centrality of religious spirituality may have sometimes been secondary to the material progress and mundane advantages that were afforded to those who affiliate uh, themselves with the Christianity. So the ways in which missionaries were perceived by Koreans manifest how secular advancement in educational or medical uh, or material world was a crucial part of introducing the new the new religion. Um, uh, in many cases, Christian affiliation tend to provide many opportunities uh, for education, employment, leadership, or even uh, lifestyle. So it is in this coalescing dynamic between the sacred and the secular and between discourse and experience that the concept of present modernity can be uh, fruitfully uh, understood. And I would add, this uh, notion of present modernity is a particularly helpful in understanding the history of modern womanhood in Korea because for Korean girls and women, their experience of the modern was significantly shaped by person Christianity the vast majority of educated women and early feminists were educated at mission schools and had working relationship with the missionaries or Christian groups in one way or another as one of the korean intellectuals said in 1930 uh korean woman's world is uh, predominantly governed or uh, governed by or ruled by christian women so to that extent uh korean educated Korean women and elite women's uh, affiliation with Christianity was actually quite significant. So even those who had a very critical uh, opinion about missionaries, because of missionaries' racism and missionaries' um, kind of hegemonic patriarchal uh, attitude, even they acknowledged the value of the opportunities provided by uh, missionaries in terms of formal education and career paths, especially for women. (laughs)
1: Mm, Yeah, I really appreciate how you you know, really blur the boundaries of secular and, uh, you know, religious and how, you know, for, you know, a lot of these, like, uh, educated Korean women, uh, the material benefits and uh, in a way this, like, commonly, like, uh, associated ideas of a modernization and that is, uh, you know, more associated with a uh, secular regime, uh, you know, was actually very much tied together and, uh, you know, that shaped their like upbringing and education, uh, which I, uh, you know, was thought was a very important um contribution and. You know, what you were saying about this, like, you know, the blurring boundaries and, you know, the, the complex role of, you know, a Christian missionary woman and like how, you know, the Korean women like also in a way reappropriated and negotiated, you know, some of these material benefits and ideological contributions that they gave Um, is bringing me to the first chapter where you talk about the genealogy of hyung ideology. Um, and I was especially struck by the sentence where you said that the category of women, uh, you know, quote actually emerged or became only legible uh, through. Um, you know, these like missionary discourses and, uh, you know, the confluence of, uh, you know, the, the Confucian ideologies, uh, you know, colonial ideologies, as well as the um, missionary outlook on uh, domesticity. And I was wondering whether you could tell us more about, uh, you know, what this uh, ideology is, uh, and how this complicates a more simplistic view that, you know, patriarchy is patriarchy that comes from the traditional, that is, you know, aside from modernizing forces um, by illustrating how, you know, all of these transnational encounters are, you know, in a way complicit in reshaping the meaning of patriarchy. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm always excited to talk about uh, Hyunmo Yangche, Wise Mother, Good Wife. Uh, so I'd like to probably mention like a three aspects. Um, first, I consider Wise Mother, Good Wife, Hyunmo Yangche as the most powerful gender ideology of the 20th century in Korea and possibly in East Asia. It has been so pervasive and it is also constantly evolving. Um, I want to show that this very conservative gender ideology is not uniquely Korean or Asian, rather. It should be understood as a result of the complex transnational interactions among various intellectual, political, and cultural uh, mandates. Uh, More specifically, in Yangcho, we find Confucian-prescribed gender ethics from the Joseon dynasty, the Korean nationalist view of ideal womanhood, Japanese colonial policies that were implemented with the aim of producing uh, royal royal uh, subjects uh, to the emperor, and uh, Protestant Christian gender ideology brought by missionaries that emphasized domesticity, piety, and obedience. And I think there is a kind of an imagination that Western women are all progressive, liberal, and advanced, but uh actually Victorian womanhood, uh, American missionaries brought to Korea uh, were actually quite uh conservative, but also pretty much in line with the Confucian prescribed gender uh norms and practices as well. Although uh I don't wanna generalize Confucian gender ideology because it's also very, very complex and it's not entirely oppressive either. And second, um, my uh, research uh, project always engaged in a broader uh, feminist inquiry, that is, how patriarchal norms and practices were challenged, adjusted, modernized, and even reinforced uh, within the particular historical and sociopolitical context. So the genealogy of Hyunmoyangcho sharply shows us how patriarchy persists and reinvent itself, adjusting to the new demands and circumstances. Uh, in the age of neoliberalism, a 21st century version of Hyunmoyang has emerged. Uh, in this new version, the core value of the conservative gender ideology is not changing, but see, images, discourses, and certain manifestations constantly change to accommodate uh, new uh, circumstances. And uh, as you probably know, in the age of uh, so-called post-feminism, some may think feminism is a thing of the past. However, global gender history is uh, full of backlash against any progress that has been made uh, in gender politics. Look, you know, what is happening now? Uh, The 1973 Supreme Court decision on Roe v. Wade is likely to be overturned soon. Unfortunately, History uh, sometimes goes backward, and, um, uh, you know, we have a long way to go. And uh, lastly, I just want to also mention that uh, despite the power of male dominant structures, uh, in this uh, chapter, I want to bring out how women navigated those oppressive systems and how they resisted or sometimes appropriated the existing system to carve out their own space for empowerment and liberation. And I think that uh, the gender ideology of a wise mother-go-wife demonstrates the persistence of patriarchy and at the same time, women's own agency in undermining the very patriarchal structure as well.
1: Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, thank you so much for, you know, talking about Roe versus Wade because I think that has been... A shock for many of us and also a reminder that we really shouldn't take our rights for granted. Um, I think that, um, so I think that was really salient and especially how you connected to like history and a danger of seeing history as like a linearly, you know, progressive line or narrative, um, you know, that often, you know, occludes how similar types of violence and exploitation and power dynamic is being perpetuated. Um, and I think what I really especially um, appreciated about, you know, what you were saying about these, like, transnational encounters and how, you know, these, like, Western missionary women were actually quite conservative and really upheld, you know, domesticity ideals um was also kind of the insight that it was also showing about gender as, you know, not just about, in a way, like, Being a woman and like being oppressed, but rather like the system of oppression, um, you know, that is about subordination that is also determined by, you know, the status of like the nation, as well as obviously like the power of colonization and also how the discourse of modernity is used as a disciplining power, um, in some ways, um, and how, you know, Korean women though, like, you know, also had the power to negotiate it. So that really like complicating our idea about power through this um, discussion about Hyung Moe yang I think is what's really meaningful. I think especially for, you know, Korean audience out there I think they probably know how Hyung yeah, like yang so is still really dominant and uh, I think even for people who kind of like grew up in America like I think there is still this dominant ideal of, uh, you know, like Pleasing, you know, like your elders, you know, like being a loyal, like faithful, you know, like daughter, and then later on wife. So yeah, I really thought that this was a very like relevant section that really historicized this like very dominant ideology. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So
0: from, you summarized it mean, beautifully and perfectly well.
1: <laughs> oh, oh thank you. Yeah yeah yeah. I was very struck by this. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Um, from so this genealogy about, you know, the making of, in a way, women as a category in Korea, then you turn your attention to the households. And uh, again, I also found this extremely relevant, uh, you know, because my research is also about, you know, development of households, um, you know, as like a... Uh, with like a modernizing forces, and uh, I uh, was uh, hoping that you could tell us more about how you know home is home was like constructively you know like ideologically constructed, and also the influence of home economics as a discipline in uh, colonial Korea.
0: Yeah, thank you. Um, My research has always emphasized the dynamic interplay between discourse and experience, between ideology and material cultures, and also between the local and the global. So I thought this idea, the idea and experience of a house and home is just a wonderful example to illustrate uh, this approach. Uh, It also demonstrates How modernity was imagined and practiced in the most intimate and private domains, the domestic, while that was still closely tied to imperial and capitalist expansion. And in that book, um, I also highlight uh, home economics as a discipline to demonstrate the dynamic transpacific flow of ideas, people, and materials. Uh, just like the gender ideology of Hyunmoyang yangcher," Wise Mother, Good Wife, the ways in which home economics as a discipline was developed by uh, various agents shows the very tensions between compliance and resistance. Uh, It shows how conservative gender ideology uh, is reinforced um, by assigning women to the domestic. But at the same time, the very same ideology enabled women to create new openings and new careers for themselves in the public domain and ultimately on a global scale under the banner of a scientific uh, home or scientific uh, modern uh, homemaking. So, in you know, understanding this uh, transnational and uh, imperial nature of the development of home economics as a discipline, uh, it is important to note that American home economists held uh, authoritative power as a teachers. However, I want to emphasize that home, econo- home economists uh, Korean home economists were not passive recipients of Western theories and practices. They were keenly aware of the local conditions, especially in material conditions, and um, uh, they realized how they really need to adapt uh, Western theory and practice to those uh, local circumstances. And during my research trips, um, I read... Um, Korean students' so term papers and MA thesis uh, in home economics, especially at Oregon Agricultural College, which is now uh, Oregon State University, um, Korean women who went there uh, in the 1920s and 30s. It was really fun. And I could actually see their grade, bu- grade books. Uh <laughs> Uh, I, I was surprised uh, those great books were available to me as well, but uh, the archivist was so generous uh, in sharing virtually everything in their archives. Um, but while uh, rummaging through uh, their papers and their reading through those materials, it was very clear that those Korean home economies uh, made a very concerted uh, efforts, not only uh, to indigenize Western knowledge, but also to reinterpret uh, traditional values and everyday practices to modernize them. In fact, you know, their um, exposure to Western modernity uh, made them uh, even more uh, aware of their local tradition, uh, local situations uh, more sharply. And I think they were kind of open to that sort of some new and old ideas and uh, practices um, in envisioning the future uh, with their own expertise in home economics.
1: Yeah, Wow. Well, yeah, this is, yeah, this was like such an interesting chapter, Um. especially because um, in some ways I found like home economics is so important in Korea. It's like a, a very important discipline in Korea, I feel, while in uh, America, like I don't see home economics as much. I mean, this could just be like my exposure thing, but um, which also just makes me think about like how... Uh, you know, like the status of the discipline is probably also in a way shaped by the relative positionality of the uh, of the nation. Um, and the great part is so interesting because I do wonder, like, how they were graded, you know, like how these like instructors were grading the ideologies or like the visions of modern home that was expressed by these um, Korean educated women Um yeah, yeah, so that's, it's really interesting. Did most of them get good grades, or were there some, like, not?
0: <laughs> <laughs> because uh, they were non-native speakers of English, and so their papers, you know, uh, uh, kind of showed that, and some American faculty members try to correct their English, but... but- but these Korean women, as well as other foreign uh, or international students abroad to this kind of program was, uh, was, uh, you know, what was going on in their own countries. So in, in some sense, American home economics as a field, was kind of some headquarter in collecting this global home economics uh, or global home practices. And so this is another kind of element of uh, Western hegemony in producing and circulating knowledge. And they brought international students with some scholarship, and these international students provided local information from their country to enrich the practice of home, uh, homemaking uh, throughout the world. So there is a lot of some kind of a politics uh, going on uh, in terms of knowledge production and distribution, and uh, and also the re- training international folks uh, is a way to continue to maintain Western hegemony uh, in shaping home economics as well as other disciplines about home economics in this case um, as well. So uh, we need to be mindful of that aspect, um, but at the same time, I mean, I was—I have to say—while uh, reading through those materials and a lot of photographs. Um, uh uh it's just that uh, there are some genuine bonding and solidarity uh between teachers and international students there. And their bonding and solidarity continue even after they left the school. Um and uh, Eva Mylon, for example, who was a dean of home economics at, at Oregon Agricultural College, uh was actually uh uh almost like a, the main person in constructing home economics in East Asia and so uh, she was invited in post-colonial korea uh, as a consultant in shaping postcolonial uh, korea's um, uh, home economics uh, and etc and of course she had a disciples uh, who really uh, ruined the field of home economics in korea uh, uh, from the 1930s and ongoing even now <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. yeah. yeah oh that's like yeah that's really that's really interesting yeah and then uh, to think about that you know there's like continuing influences in our thoughts and, you know, like the, just the knowledge production aspect is really fascinating. And um, this is actually really reminding me oh, actually about your final chapter on rural modernity, where you really expand the framework of colonial modernity that really just empathize on the urban areas in the past, because yeah I remember how, you know, you were talking about the importance of this like networks that were, you know, forged between teachers, students, like the deans, uh, that were quite transnational in uh, women in educated Korean women implementing all uh, these like kind of like spiritual enlightenment programs for rural residents in colonial Korea and like kind of reimagining rural areas as like a as a site of uh, development and like modernization in many ways. Um, yeah, so I was wondering whether um, you could tell us more about uh, how you kind of like came to focus on the rural areas, like whether it was uh, any archival materials that kind of like led you there. Um, and yeah, how, you know, like uh, you're expanding, you know, the colonial modernity framework by focusing on the rural areas in your final chapter.
0: yeah. You know, I think, uh, you know, uh, modernity uh, was often associated with the urban, elite, and middle class. Um, But the reality of colonial Korea uh, uh, was that it was a predominantly uh, agrarian uh, society. So given that reality, intellectuals and reformers and revolutionaries, they were almost like a force to pay attention to the rural population and community. But as I demonstrate in Chapter 4, even those rural communities and campaigns for uh, rural revitalization were deeply connected with the global uh, through religious organizations, ideological uh, institutions, as well as personal network um, between teachers and students uh, and et cetera. And uh, this uh, rural revitalization projects uh, took place uh, from the uh, late 1920s to the uh, mid-1930s. And this was a period of worsening economic conditions in uh, rural Korea. Under these circumstances, women intellectuals and like other uh, male reformers as well engaged in uh, rural revitalization campaigns and They drew uh, lots of inspiration and models from uh, their transnational experiences. Uh, In particular, interestingly, Danish uh, rural programs were a source of inspiration for uh, Korean reformers. Uh, It's not just for Koreans, actually, Danish rural programs were inspirational to so many people, including Americans as well at the time. And so this chapter offers a very detailed history of the role that women reformers played uh, in the rural revitalization uh, movement, Um, because in many ways, um, new woman or educated woman in colonial Korea uh, was always almost almost exclusively associated with the urban elite. Um, So I just wanted to highlight uh, their involvement in rural projects was a significant part of uh, early uh, feminist movement in Korea. And at the core of their efforts uh, was, uh, in, in the case of women uh, rural uh, reformers, at the core of their efforts was uh, this uh, interdenominational global Christian network uh, that brought people together, uh, people, resources, money, and information. But also this was a way to link urban elite women with a rural uh, populace. So in this chapter four, uh, I argue that uh, women reformers were pursuing um, an alternative modernity uh, that was inspired by their transnational experience in Europe and the U.S., but reworked uh, for the local conditions in Korea. What uh, their reform efforts show was that their primary directive was enlightenment, uh, k or uh, um as a pathway to uh, improving uh, farmers' daily lives, actual you know daily lives, and with the most, um, with the vast majority of the rural population at the time, uh, uh, uh mired in illiteracy, deprivation, and poverty, uh, those Ill- Korean illiterate wo- uh, women believe that the rural work in Korea at this particular uh, moment, uh, should prioritize very practical enlightenment project rather than emphasize uh, ideology or resort to lofty abstract ideals. Accordingly, their rural programs focus on uh, basic literacy and numeracy training uh, and practical knowledge about nutrition and disease prevention. So improving domestic family life uh, was very important uh, as a part of this uh, rural enlightenment envi- uh, in- movement. And, and that sort of movement also contribute to empowering rural women uh, as they gained more knowledge about nutrition, hygiene, uh, family budgeting, and child-rearing. And also remember at the time, uh, you know, many babies and child uh, children died at a very early age because of a lack of nutrition, but also a lack of medical uh, service available to the vast majority of uh, rural population at the time. Um, another element is uh, these reformers also emphasize uh, economic independence for women. And this is uh, another key lesson um, as a rural uh, uh Rural Work uh, encourages women to take uh, side jobs to help uh, with the family uh, finances. So through these uh, uh, programs, uh, leaders of the Rural Work stressed the indispensable role women play in nourishing the family, enriching the family coffers, and contributing to a healthier, more stable community. But also in a broader context, uh, women's participation in and uh, contribution to the development of a rural community was seen as one of the linchpins in restoring Korea. So here, so like the way I also um, analyze uh, in the discussion of uh, house and home, and I think this uh, home, house, and domesticity uh, had been perennially undervalued, but uh, these reform efforts also show this domesticity or domestic arena is actually central. So they put the domesticity at the center of movement, uh, social movement, women's movement, and even national movement. So that is a kind of an important uh, aspect. Were they successful? Um, it depends on how we measure success. But uh, what is clear to me is that the rural uh, reform movements were um Uh, still an important part of uh, early uh, feminist movement, although they were crushed by the Japanese colonial power, uh, especially after the Asia-Pacific War. And there were a few uh, prominent but uh, not so well-known women reformers at the time in rural communities, so I just wanted to highlight uh, their lives and their uh, contributions uh, to uh, women's history here
1: yeah yeah this um i yeah i found that like yeah this chapter was also very um striking for me as well because uh, when i was doing archival research with ywca's documents uh, regarding professionalization of you know domestic workers in uh, uh, post-colonial korea um they talk a lot about like nutrition you know like uh you know how to like uh properly nourish the babies and like the moms um and also like Budgeting and like obviously sanitation. Um, so, in a way, the focus on like the daily life and this tie between like a more modernized practice as well as in a way like a spiritual reform, because they talk a lot about also how the workers need to have an understanding of their place in the world and you know how that also translates to these practices. um So, yeah, I found your central argument here about how you know domestic arena became became a central movement to be, you know, really relevant. Also in terms of looking at the continuity between colonial and post-colonial movements, and as well as the rural and urban areas. Um, and I also found it a uh, really interesting too how. Um, economy um, is also actually like when we look at like the older like philosophical documents uh, is actually primarily about the household like how like all these philosophers talk about men's primary duty actually is to manage the households first, um, and how economy actually as a word, like started from um, in a way this like management of the household uh, that became uh, you know like a measure for the nation and the state. Um, so I found this like insight that you know really centers the household to look at the larger structure of like economy and you know these networks to be um, yeah very very insightful yeah 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 so thank you so much for like um going through that for us yeah um and I uh, wanted to you know before I close with the last question, I did also wanted to talk about um you know, the third chapter um and um because you know you, uh, throughout this talk and also in the book, you know, one of your primary points, in a way, is showing this dialectic, um, of you know, like agency, like reception, um, this kind of like a flow and like a, a travel of ideas that you can really see when we look at educated women. Um, so I wanted to ask you, you know, can you tell us more about how you analyze these travel writing to show, you know, educated women's dialectical
0: away. Yeah, you know, this chapter three, uh, it gave me perfect justification to travel globally.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, thanks to uh, some of the really generous grants, I was able to uh, travel really widely uh, within the U.S., Australia. Um, at the time, I was actually in Australia teaching at Australia National University. Um, I also traveled to Europe, including uh, Sweden, Denmark, Germany, and France, as well as in China, Japan, Korea, uh, in search of any traces of Korean women who travel to uh, those countries may need to study. And uh, for Korean women who had been bound by the gender ethics of the inside-outside rule, they uh, were bobbing in Korean, and confined to the domestic arena, it was absolutely revolutionary act uh, to transcend the traditional. Uh, traditional bounds of a family and nation to pursue education um, or simply uh, to uh, travel uh, to experience the world. So in chapter three, I examine how such a travel was possible to begin with and what it entailed. And I demonstrate the crucial role of the Global Missionary Network, uh, which is served as a channel uh, that young women could use to experience the world beyond the metropole and the colony. Um, I should mention that the majority of Korean women who studied overseas went to Japan. Uh, this is also true for Korean men as well. But even in Japan, most of Korean women attended mission-run schools, because there were some very close connections uh, among missionaries and as a teachers and doctors. So they really exchanged uh, their students, they exchanged information, they created this uh, um, very well-developed network uh, among themselves. So even in Japan, Korean women study at uh, Christian-run uh, schools. And so Tracing uh, the travels of these women through Asia, North America, Europe, and Australia, um, uh, this chapter discusses how their international experience also vaulted them into a new sense of selfhood, uh, racial and national identity, and uh, created the context for the growth of uh, women's movement because they were uh, widely or amply exposed to some of the women's movement uh, in their own, in those countries at the time. Uh, and um, uh, in particular, I just argue in this chapter that their direct exposure to Western and Japanese modernity uh, further sharpened their sense of locality, uh, which in turn uh, shaped uh, their vision for social reform in Korea. And again... Uh, educated women uh, have often been criticized, especially by male intellectuals, uh, uh, that uh, these women uh, became so called westernized or even Americanized. And, and I think my research tried to challenge that notion <laughs> that. Uh, and certainly, uh, these women got influenced by Western theories and practices, but they were never passive recipient of uh, those foreign knowledge. They were very active uh, interpreter of anything they um, they uh, they learn and uh, exposed to. So that was kind of an important point. Um, and this uh, direct exposure also uh, revealed. Uh, uh revealed to these Korean women that uh, American women for example, were not necessarily liberated uh, you know they have their own struggles um and so so to me this type of some uh, direct exposure uh, was a very important complement to how uh, women, Western and Korean women were portrayed and uh, portrayed and represented in popular discourse.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah yeah. Thank you so much for this because I was often, you know, whenever I read any literature on new women, I was really struck by how, you know, male intellectuals always kind of talk about their shallowness, you know, (laughs) yeah, uh, how they're kind of like captivated by this like shiny things of like westernization and in a way, like really just talk about them as like just like a passive recipient. So I was really grateful about your contribution and how, you know, you have, like, all of these, like, rich, like, archival, you know, traces and, like, evidences that, uh, you know, they were really thinking seriously about their role, uh, about, uh, you know, in a way, being, like, a mediator of these, you know, in a way, opportunities and the encounters and uh, how they were thinking about, like, the local context and, uh, you know, where they, you know, their own positionality in this process, yeah. Yeah. Um, So it was really, really fascinating. Yeah, I've um, taken up a lot of your time. So I wanted to conclude with the traditional uh, final question for the New Books Network, which is what is the next project you're working on?
0: Oh yeah, thank you. Um, as I was finishing up this book manuscript. Um, and we started to score uh, new projects. Uh, they would build on what I've done, but also, uh, I wanted something. I want something that would expand and challenge the intellectual orbit uh, I was uh, uh. I'm familiar with. So in that process, um, I also should say that I was influenced by various initiatives that focus on public scholarship and humanities for the public good. And I have recently launched a new uh, book project that engages in feminist food studies. Uh, Food links us uh, to uh, literally everything from microorganisms to national politics, the global political economy, and the environment. Uh, So in this book, uh, I... Uh, focus on uh, food and gender in global Korea. Uh, What I mean by global Korea is a Korea whose history and culture has been shaped by the global uh, flow of ideas, people, capital, and materials. In particular, uh, I plan to focus more on Uh, the trans-Pacific foodways, given the very close ties uh, that have been forced between Korea and the United States through uh, religious, political, economic, and cultural uh, interactions, uh, uh, either by force or sometimes um, through volition since the late 19th century. And in analyzing food in global Korea, uh, I want to take gender and domesticity as the main category of analysis. Um, I joined this recent uh, famous scholarship that takes food and domesticity as a very expedient side of inquiry, not only to challenge the presumed inferior status of the domestic vis-a-vis the public, but to envision uh, new life politics in the current age of excess inequality and ecological crisis. And in thinking of food and gender politics, I approach uh, politics beyond the formal domains of life, domains of law, governance, and party politics. Uh, I take ordinary everyday practices such as eating and cooking uh, seriously uh, as a very contested site in which complex agenda national and national global and environmental uh, politics unfold so i've been really enjoying uh doing uh this research and who knows how long it takes how uh, to uh, finish this book but i feel uh very um uh fortunate to found to have found this topic and uh, it just uh leads to uh, so many different Uh, directions and uh, inquiry uh, paths I could engage in, um, uh, especially in relation to uh, the spirit of a public public scholarship.
1: Yeah, oh, that sounds really exciting. I mean, I personally love food and also understand, you know, the politics of food as well. Um, And (laughs) as someone who is also studying you know domesticity and like gender yeah, this is like really really interesting and especially about what you said about looking at this at you know as an important side of inquiry to really reimagine new politics especially in the times of precarity as the uh, covid pandemic has revealed to us and um uh, i actually for uh my class read uh the anti uh sewing squad, squad like on like radical care and uh, the book I think might be really interesting because you know they do like talk about how like aunties, you know, the uh, immigrant women, you know, through their like act of cooking and like the work of care. And then now like sewing masks during the pandemic is actually really embodying a new ways of knowledge production and politics. Uh, so, um, yeah, I, I was just reminded of that book when you were talking about your next project. Yeah. yeah.
0: And also think this is uh, uh, focusing on eating and uh, uh, cooking is also uh, a very feminist challenge to uh logocentric, uh Western and also uh male-centered uh, uh ideology that value for a long time rationality, mind, uh abstract things, but a very mundane bodily stuff uh, at home uh is actually really crucial. I mean we need we really need two different kinds of perspective uh to recenter what is essential in life. Um not only in individual lives, but also uh, the national, but also ecological uh, sense. Yeah.
1: yeah. And I love what you said about kind of like thinking about this, like spatial politics, you know, uh, also if from a point of view of like sensorial, like, yeah, like I love what you said about, yeah, recentering, Um, yeah, like the mundane and bodily and how also thinking about that as like a spatial challenge. Yeah. yeah. And also have
0: fun in doing
1: research. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is this is really fun. I'm really excited for your next project, and um, I hope that I get to also interview you for that book when it comes
0: out. Yeah. Oh, that would be lovely. That would be great. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. a good motivation for me to finish the book project soon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh,
1: thank you so much again for being here. It was such a pleasure being able to interview you and
0: to have you here. Uh, thank you so much for the invitation i think this is a, this was a wonderful uh, opportunity uh, getting to know your research a little bit and love to uh, learn more about your your exciting uh, research project and and also this uh, um, uh, new book uh, network uh, podcast program this is a amazing amazing uh, program yeah
1: Yeah, it is a truly amazing program that like I think a lot of people like listen to so I'm also excited for your books to reach more audience as well from this podcast yeah yeah Uh, thank you you so so much yeah (laughs)